I want to make this clear. It's not a small thing to leave a faith tradition. It is a huge decision because I owe so much, we both do, mm-hmm. to the Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Britt Bowler-Jack, and for the next few months, we're going to be interviewing millennial pastors who have transitioned out of the Church of the Nazarene. It is my hope and prayer that these stories will be um, the catalyst for beautiful conversations to come about who we are and where we're going and how we can better embody who God is calling us to be. You're not alone. You know, there are so, so, so many of us who are asking questions and trying to figure out what a wholehearted life uh, means. One of my first things is like, if you can stay, you should stay. But I would say if you're going to stay, you have to do the work. That's really all that matters at the end of the day, because it's all about faithful ministry. I just wanted to give you a quick production note about this week's episode. You may have noticed this already, but long after these interviews were recorded, we made the editorial decision to mute the names of churches and people to keep these episodes as anonymous as possible while still trying to learn the lessons that these stories have to teach us. And we just wanted to let you know that this particular week, it does make the story hard to follow at times. So hopefully you can bear with us and hear the story um, for what it is trying to teach us and not get too lost in the details. Now on to the episode. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack and I'm here with my guest, Patrick Engel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so let's start at the beginning and ask, um, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Yeah. Uh, so I, my family in fourth grade, when I was in fourth grade, we moved to the Church of the Nazarene there was a lot that was going on. We were raised up to that point, um, like Southern Baptists, okay. uh, which I think that was in the, yeah, that would have been in the mid nineties. So at that point, Southern Baptists, at least uh, in the West was very synonymous with non-denominational uh, churches. Yep. Um, and we had, uh, I, I joke that the way that uh, non-denominational churches plant churches is that they usually have a church split and then uh, they go and another church is planted and that happens that happened twice oh, wow. uh, that I can that I personally can remember mm-hmm. so my parents were um, in this community uh, before I was born and um, yeah I remember two church splits and I I, the second church split was just at a point where it, it wasn't very pretty. It was very ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, the pastor was uh, strong armed out and my parents were kind of getting tired of that mm-hmm. uh, cycle. And then my oldest brother was in uh, a junior in high school at the time. And uh, he was venturing out and exploring different things and, uh, he liked this girl that went to church of the Nazarene. Nice. And so, yep. So he started going to that youth group. Uh, and prior to that, he wasn't really attending church. So my parents were like, Oh, it must be a good church because, uh, our 
their eldest is attending a church again. Yeah. Um, and then also there's a thing called Saturday nights in Denver, which is, was like a concert on Saturday nights. I don't know if you are familiar with this at all, but uh, is uh, a larger church in the church of the Nazarene. Um, and they have a, a, so it sits about like 3000, I think, or 3,500. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. um, and they, in the 80s and 90s and mid 2000s like early 2000s they would have concerts on saturday nights once a month and they call them saturday nights in denver uh and my parents would always go to that like it was a church thing like all all christians in denver i guess knew about saturday nights in denver and they'd go and they see like the gaithers and um i can't think of any other famous uh you know, but those types of, those mm-hmm, types of concerts, mm-hmm. yeah. um, they, they started adapting later on when they realized that a lot of people who liked those types of, um, that genre of music were, were dying off or like just mm. getting too old. So they, mm. like we had an audio adrenaline one time. Uh, I know, I know big, big time. <laughs> uh, point of grace was there. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. They Classic. showed up there. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so my parents were familiar with the church in that in that regard. And so we just went there and started going to the Church of the Nazarene in fourth grade. Um, I really didn't know too much about denominations in fourth grade. Sure. Um, and yeah, but were was intrigued. My fourth grade uh, Sunday school teacher, she was um, a committed Sunday school teacher like we had a Seder I remember in fourth grade yeah like some pretty cool stuff like uh she she opened my world to uh, I think the initial love and and conversation of theology Mm. um yeah and then I just kind of took with it like I uh it that it was a good time and it was a good place to be there were I was homeschooled and so uh, that was my social life was the church Mm -hmm. um the uh the children's pastor and the two youth pastors um they were very big into uh, mentorship and mentoring so they didn't mind if I showed up and hung Mm -hmm. out and um yeah so it was it uh that was my experience all the way up through high school um and then they were the senior high youth pastors when I was in senior high. Nice. Um, yeah. And I, at that point, I had already developed a name, like uh, just an affinity for uh, abstract thought and theological conversation. Um, so I had a decision to make. I was either going to go I had, uh, to Boston College, where I didn't get a full ride uh, to the religion program. Um, but I got a lot uh, of money to go there. Uh, Southern Nazarene University, um, which that intern program and then coupled with a couple of some other academic stuff gave me um, a full ride to Southern Nazarene. Mm. Or um, then from there, it was either that or I uh, was offered an opportunity at a coffee shop to be a manager. Nice. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> And in retrospect, I kind of wish I took that job as a <laughs> <shop> manager. <laughs> um, uh, really well, let's back up just a little bit. Tell, tell me about um, 
when did you sense kind of a call to ministry? Do you have a story like that in your life? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, like it was the call into ministry was very much kind of like uh, those who have been raised in the church. When you ask, like, can you give us, uh, especially the evangelical church, like, can you give us a call of your, you know, when did you first, when did you become saved? Mm. And you know, the story, we're all kind of like, uh, we kind of were like, <laughs> we were kind of born into salvation. Sorry. Mm. Like, like there's really not, we, we don't really have these aha moments. Right. And we would create aha moments at church camps and uh, youth groups and, you know, bedtimes with our parents um, because those were when we continued to, I, I think, renew our faith in God, but yeah. we also knew that we had to have a story behind um our practices. Mm. Uh, so my call into ministry, I'm not really, I don't really, I would always say that my call into ministry was when I was 13. Um, like that's my generic story. Like I was 13. I had a call into ministry. I was sitting in youth group. Um, I realized that I liked to help people mm. and I enjoy helping people. I've always, I've always been willing to sacrifice a little bit of my health for the health of of others mm. uh, in denver there's a church um and so it was like this urban church uh setting that really ministered to transient uh transitional people and um uh yeah just the urban life and i would go my mom and i would go there regularly to mm. just help out and when i was in sixth grade you know i started going there on my own i would get picked up by the pastor there because he lived in my neck of the woods. So he would pick me up on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I would go and um, just hang out there and work there. And uh, and then on top of that, like I already said, like I had an affinity for the abstracts. My brother is quite a bit older than me. And he, when he went off to college, um, he would come home and he would bring philosophy books and he would be like, hey, I need you to read this and then let's talk about it. So like I was reading uh, Descartes, right? When I was 12 nice. and having a conversation with it. Um, and when it would, I would have been embarrassed probably with what I said when I was 12, <laughs> but at least I was, at least I was saying that. And then that naturally, when you stretch those muscles, it leads into other muscles. So uh, when you read scripture and you start to think about it from an intellectual standpoint, um, having that conversation with adults, people, people would um encourage that and be proud of that right mm -hmm. and in the church um being a pastor is a thing of honor and everybody wants to like find the next big pastor it feels like in the church of the nazarene at least mm -hmm. um and so i just got encouraged and almost ushered in into that place mm -hmm. yeah um so that was where my call to ministry happened and began um so you've got this sense and you go to SNU, kind of tell me the ministry story from there. Yeah. So I went to SNU. Um, I was an intern. Uh, and so that intern program, you're encouraged. I don't even remember, man, this was so long ago. Uh, you might know better, but like freshman year, wasn't it just like four hours or something like that? Yeah. Five, it was basically just like going to church. And that counted as your, as your hours of internship, right? And you didn't really know like what church you wanted to go to. And so I went to a church uh, that was 
I think it was available and I really didn't know all the churches in Oklahoma city. And that seemed like a good church. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I had a friend who was a year older than me that was, uh, interning there. Uh, and so it was easy. Like I could carpool and ride and, um, and that probably <laughs> began, um, began the story of me leaving the church of the Nazarene. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that I love about the church of the Nazarene that I picked up at an early age was this idea that, um, we have within our history, a love and care and compassion for, um, the downtrodden, the marginalized, um, those on the other side of the tracks, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the story of where we got our name. Like we picked the church of the Nazarene because what good can come out of Nazareth and can anything good come out of Nazareth? So when I went to, it was, I mean, it's like, it's your basic, you know, how you go into a Starbucks or a McDonald's and they all kind of feel and taste the same, sure. right? It feels like a Nazarene church. Sure. Um, yeah. I didn't know that at the time because my Nazarene, the Nazarene church that I went into very still has the same feeling, but it was like walking into. So that's why mm-hmm. I didn't intern at was because I was like, that feels like the church that I grew up in. Sure. I want to try something different. Yeah. So I went into like the more stereotypical Nazarene church and interned there. Um, and then really like was, <laughs> was getting angry at, um, kind of just like the consumerism of it all like even if like ah this is how like this is a great I think depiction of the church in the west um and it's a micro version found in the church of the Nazarene like the church of the Nazarene did church really really well for like the 80s and 90s um And then whatever reason they lost it and they, the majority of the Nazarene churches couldn't uh, keep up with it for, from a consumeristic model. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And like, I, I just got frustrated being at that church, great people, good people, like no um, anger towards the people, but anger towards the model and what it's, um, nurtured and culture and cultivated mm. um and it was just like really kind of just your run-of-the-mill consumerism granted it was outdated um but it was still present and I felt that and I could do that and I was like like you know what like I I wanted to go into ministry to help people I wanted mm. to go into ministry to really make a difference and and not just make a difference to help people but to make a difference to speak out against injustice to give voice to the powerless Um, and I wasn't feeling like I was doing that, um, because, uh, yeah, I just didn't, especially at a, as a young kind of, um, uh, hard-headed, uh, male like myself, like I just, I didn't, I don't know how else to say it. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, there might be a wall in my way. I will run my head through the brick wall, like just to Mm. get to where I want to go. Like, that's just kind of how I operate. (laughs) Um, not a good fit. No, it wasn't a good fit. So then I started interning at a church in, or in Oklahoma city 
Mm-hmm. Um, side note, I, I don't want to lose my thought, but so in Oklahoma City is notoriously like sketchy. Um, it has been for a very long time. I don't know if it's changed in the past like 20 years since I've been there, but yeah, probably not, right? Um, so uh, we, so I, I, I picked there, but I am a police officer now. Um, I work with a two guys that came from Oklahoma City. So they left Oklahoma City. They came to Durango, right? Mm. And they were actually probably policing in Oklahoma City while I was interning at 10th and Penn. Wow. And like, they're like, they're like, they're like, you, they're like, we sent a lot of people to your church on a regular basis. And I was like, I'm glad. And they were like, but we also like, they're like, we, like that was just a sketchy neighborhood. Like cops didn't like hanging out in that neighborhood. <laughs> I, I know. And I was like, ah, that's awesome. Like, I know that. Like we talked about the hungry frog. I mean, mm. like all sorts of things. Like it, we just reminisced a lot. The hungry frog for people who are listening and don't know Oklahoma city is this diner that has like 55 years of uh, nicotine smoke just etched into the wall Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you like they stop smoking inside and you still go in there and eat and you walk out and you smell like you just smoked a pack of cigarettes (laughs) like that's how it is uh so I went to because of the congregation there were uh you know homeless uh prostitutes orphans marginalized individuals um the old nazarenes that had been there before gentrification occurred and they were in their 80s and they were just committed to loving god and loving people and committed Mm -hmm. to their church regardless of regardless of what their beliefs were right um regardless of how they would judge the people that were there they still knew they were supposed to love them Mm -hmm. because that's the history of the church of the nazarene right like we're supposed to love the people who society doesn't love Mm -hmm. and i saw that in the elders and and I didn't really I don't really see that a lot in a lot of churches mm-hmm. um so there's something to be said for that and the pastor there um like he <laughs> he's just like he's I don't know how to describe him he's a uh, also a hard-headed individual who really didn't care what your theology was but just wanted to love people Mm. and didn't really care how you did it as long as you participated in it now like granted he's definitely hard-headed and um but man like his <laughs> i i just it it's to me his character and integrity spoke to me mm. um even though he he didn't like to philosophize with me or have theological conversations um we just were in line uh another another marker and my journey to the end with the church of the nazarene um happened there because um the uh district advisory board (coughs) really didn't like that much for all the reasons that i just said like he didn't like having conversation like theological conversations he didn't want to talk about politics he really didn't care to play the political game um he uh wasn't uh very charismatic all of those things and he ruffled a lot of feathers and made a lot of people angry um wasn't really good with money because he would just give it away all the time (laughs) 
<laughs> like uh, all of that stuff. Didn't report numbers because he's like, how am I supposed to report the numbers of mm. my congregation type of thing? Yeah. Um, another funny story. Uh, sorry, side point. It's great. On Saturdays, we would like feed anybody. We'd have just an open soup kitchen and we uh, the uh, suburban churches would come and help out sometimes. And as an intern there, like I would, so when, when you, man, I don't see, this is, this is part of like kind of talking about things that when people don't know me, they might get the wrong impression, but I'm very much a clean freak. And I like to be clean. I like, like, you know, this about me, like I like to comb my hair. I like to take showers. I like to wear really nice clothes and like, kind of like stand out. Um, when you minister in an urban setting, there's no point in doing that. Mm. Um, so I would show up on Saturdays, like kind of looking how I'm looking right now, like haven't taken a shower, like in like sweatpants or a shirt and just go because I knew that afterwards I would have to come home and take a shower just because of the nature of the atmosphere. Sure. Um, and I was sitting there talking to a group of guys and we were having a good time. And like I had somebody had just come back from his travels across the United States. We hadn't seen him in a while. We thought he was actually probably dead, but he showed back up. Mm. So we were just like having a good time and eating breakfast together. And I felt this like warm hand on my back. And like this woman from a church that had come to help, like handed me a socks and was like, oh, there you go. I hope you enjoy our meal today. And like had me on the back and like uh I know and got up <laughs> and I took the socks and the guys were laughing they're like you're not gonna take those socks from us are you I was like heck yeah like I need these socks too I'm a college student <laughs> uh and it was a good time and oh. and it's like uh so this is just a side note but again that I think that highlights um just in general things that like you experience as a pastor on a regular basis mm. that if you don't have a good way to deal with them they can build up or you can get like gunk in your rotors but like that's a great story to tell that's really funny that highlights somebody with good intentions mm. did a great thing you know we our church depended upon uh, suburban churches to create food and resources for us to feed these people Mm. but then instead of sitting down and and figuring out the people that they were ministering to they comfortably like you know gave socks and patted us on the back and walked away mm -hmm. without knowing our story right yeah. um and you know that's something that I struggle with on a regular basis I mean even now on so many levels um so back to so the advisory board, um, they were going to, uh, they were trying to actually remove him. Mm. Um, and it, like, it was, it, it was a, that was a hard time. Like, um, I don't know if he remembers this because like, I think I called him and like bawled for like an hour just over the phone. And he just like, he probably put me on mute. I don't know what he did, but it was like 10 o'clock at night and I just cried and he just like listened um but uh it was uh it was frustrating that they would like risk closing this church or risk removing somebody like who gave himself 
he like he gave his entire life to the church of the Nazarene specifically to a church that's not going to bring him glory or mm -hmm. fame um and he like there mm -hmm. was probably other things going on at the sure. time right like mm -hmm. I get that but for me that's how it came across mm -hmm. I was speaking to one of the um advisory men because uh, it was all men who were on this advisory panel. This was a guy that I um, would go to on Sunday afternoons to eat uh, lunch with his family that I had been doing since I was a freshman. Mm. Um, and I was saying, how can you do this? Like, I, I don't know, like, like this is, this is hurting us. It's hurting the church. It's hurting me. It's hurting. Uh, and I was saying this at the advisory panel to this man. And uh, I had already told Pastor, but like, I was like, if they kick you off, like, I probably won't stay in the church of the Nazarene because I don't mm. know if I want to be a part of a church that would do this to somebody, to one of their own. Mm. In the advisory board, as I was saying this, like, he interrupted me and he's like, hey, I just want you guys to know that, like, you're really putting this young man through a lot. Um, he, he told me that, like, he would leave if you guys kicked me off. And I'm not using that to uh to stay i'm just using that so that you know that like the next few words please just do them like with compassion mm. is what he said and the guy who i was eat, who i ate lunch with on a regular basis and shared a meal with in his home said um if he's the only if he's one of the casualties that we have from this incident um we can handle that and i was just like <clears throat> like okay this mm. is how it's gonna play so like that's just a that's a power, that's power language. Like that's somebody who speaks from a position of power without concern for those who are powerless, yeah. right? Um, and so that was just another time that I was just yeah. like realized like, like the Church of the Nazarene, as much as I love um, its theology, as much as I love its history, as much as I love um the people that are in it right it's an institution and the institution is concerned with its survival um which is yeah which is very frustrating but mm. <clears throat> that was uh that was like my first realization of that um yeah yeah and so but i continued on um because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stay committed and continue on. Uh, Where did you go from there? Yeah, I, I stayed in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, then uh, I went up to NTS, uh, to Nazarene Theological Seminary. Uh, while in Kansas City, um, and so I kind of gravitated towards that church kind of thinking, oh, you know, like the, they might have a good mission. Um, even though they're a suburban church, there might be a mm -hmm. good mission already um, in there. And I knew people there. I, the people that I knew, I respected. Uh, I was in align with a lot of their thoughts um, and beliefs. And we, so I went there, the pastor there, he was a um, took a chance on me and I was working part-time as a pastor there. Hmm. Um, yeah, kind of just like that was a, those nine months were pretty even keel. Like mm -hmm. I focused on school. My wife worked. Um, 
we hung out with family and friends. Yeah. And then um, they needed a youth pastor position. Um, yeah. And I felt, and that was actually probably really like one, one moment in my life where I really felt like I needed to go there. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, I can't articulate why, but I really felt like that was where we needed to go. Mm. Um, so we went pastor there. I finished up my master's, um, at NTS the following year. And then we got in a conversation with, um, and a couple other people. And we talked about um, forming a different model of church that was not based upon like this pastor congregation model, but was more in line with this idea of like, you know, pastors are equipping the saints type of thing from Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the pastors were going to have um, another job to bring in money. The church itself was going to be um, bivocational as well. So like the church was going to have another source of income. So not to rely upon the congregation's donations, mm-hmm. which would free up some political issues that we had. Mm-hmm. Right. And would also be a viable business model. Um, so uh, in the midst of, you know, whatever ministry may, the expenses of ministry, uh, money would be coming in that could then go to, to bigger um, things and ideas, because really that's another thing from a very early age that I didn't talk about because stories take a really long time and you're sure. asking a very complicated story to be told. Mm. Um, but I, I am still convinced that like when 70%, which is a really good percentage, by the way, split up when 70% of a congregation's, uh, income goes to paying the salaries of the pastors um the priorities are not in mission the priorities are in um sustaining and um you you know the congregation's own identity Mm. um so this is a model that would reverse that and flip that and Mm. we tried we were going to do that uh, I have no clue what happened. Uh, sometimes on my good days, I chalk it up to a series of unfortunate events. On my bad days, I chalk it up to a very convoluted con- uh, conspiracy with a lot of drawings and red string. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like We went to a, a new church, whatever they call it in the Church of the Nazarene, the new church plant, like academy mm-hmm. um we were getting some pushback from pastors on the district but we were moving forward and man uh i was encouraged to announce it to the congregation that i was pastoring at the time i didn't i did announce it the plan was to leave in october of that year and then you know a month later i was told that i needed to leave immediately Mm-hmm. um so we packed up and we left as the day that the sunday that we were there which like they had a congregation already for like this like seed congregation to to roll with us the day that we were there um the pastor of that church resigned um and the ds told the pastor 
or told the congregation that they shouldn't do the church plant without a lead pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it just kind of like un- unraveled, which was disheartening to say the least. Uh, yeah. So, so I was left with my family as a, um, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't, we were just like pastors without a church, which is really weird. Um, was pastoring a church at the time. Uh, he took me in like a, a guy like that probably shouldn't have even, I shouldn't have even been on his radar. Mm. And I was, mm. uh, which was nice and encouraging. So I had a couple coffees with him. Um, man, there was just like some good stuff that was going on um, in that moment. We, like Roxanne and I were just growing close. Um, but I still wanted, like, I wanted to pastor. Like I just yeah. wanted to pastor. I, I didn't want to um, do what I, I didn't want to just work for a living without a purpose. I wanted a purpose. Mm. Um, we, we were going to, and like, you know, that was good. Like I had moved there already. Like we were having conversations with them and I would disagree with them. And like his philosophy and his views didn't like no longer matched up with my philosophy and my views and practices. Um, and we, like, we didn't get an argue in an argument. Like we didn't, it wasn't like we were mad at each other, but it was just like this realization that like we had like gone our separate ways mm. at that moment. Um, but they still loved us and I appreciated that. And like, mm. we still love them and I hope that they appreciated that. Mm. Um, and we were at, yeah. So we were just like hanging out. Uh, I was looking for uh, another church to pastor. One of the district superintendents uh, that sat on the new church plants boards that we had to go through. Um, he reached out to me and said that he had some ideas and visions and dreams for his district, for his district where he was at. In- and he flew us out there. He showed us a church that was in, uh, like, it was just like that area. He was like, hey, I'm going to use this church to get you on my district. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. I was like, I mean, like, I don't necessarily feel like I match with this church. Um, and he's like, he's like, no, like, it'll just be a short time. Like, you'll, we'll get you here. And, um, and we set up this whole, like, intricate, like, I was I, I pastored one church and I was an associate pastor at another church, which would like, mm. yeah. Um, and the two churches were somewhat connected on this district. Like they were only a couple miles away. And so we moved to do that. And then it became apparent that the district superintendent was just, just needed somebody to fill the church. And I was the guy to fill the church. Uh which again, like, wasn't just another notch in the story, right? Like, you're, it's so just disheartening, like, when as a young guy who might be hard-headed, but is incredibly optimistic to constantly be, like, to run into these, like, roadblocks and to run into these, mm. and whether that was even, like, the intentions behind the individuals, right? Like, I think this goes back to that story that I talk about, that I just told about the lady rubbing my back. 
right? Like that might not have been their intentions, but that's how it came across. Mm. And I think it came across that way because there was, there was more of a, there's more of a concern to maintain the institution than there is to care for the people um, that are a part of it. Mm. Uh, and whether that institution is the larger denomination or whether that institution is the local congregation or your district, like whatever you want to like use to define the institution, like there's more of a concern to maintain it rather than to um, care for the people mm. is how it feels, right? Yeah. For the greater good, I guess, is what people say. So that happened. Um, another pastor on that district hired me on. Um, and that was a really good time too. Like we, he, he and I had conversations. He hired me on an associate. He didn't have a position for me at the church, like a traditional position, but he created a position, put me on in that, um, in that role, um, wanted to like, he's like, he was planning on leaving that church in a couple of years. And he wanted to at least make it easy for the church to, uh, choose to hire me as their lead pastor, if that were the case. Like, mm -hmm. and I was like, this is great. Um, and he gave me, he gave me plenty of space and opportunity to explore the type of ministry that I was passionate about, um, to try a different, he allowed, like he opened up a time on a Saturday night to create, to allow me to start to pastor a, a congregation of people. Mm. Um, yeah. And to do a different model of church and a different style of preaching, um, which was like really, really enjoyable. And it was hard. Um, I think one of the hard things about uh, doing anything that is new or different is that you kind of are making it up on your own and then, right. And uh, communicating that is really hard, but I, you know, I got to explore at that time, like dialogical preaching, which was really a really, really fun type of hermeneutic um, where you have a conversation with the congregation, right? Like, so you, you put material out there um, throughout the week and then you start to um, lead the conversation with a large group of people mm. um, we got to participate in um, like different expressions of the Eucharist I mean it was just, there was just a lot of cool things that happened that were fun in that moment in those moments I love that and <laughs> and <laughs> uh, but at the same time you know it was this realization that most people um, live lives that are so entwined and entangled with, with just their current, um, view of reality that encouraging people to imagine something different mm. is really, really hard. And it's a struggle. Mm. Um, and it's, and then it might almost be too much to, to place that upon people as well i mean like to imagine what could be and what's different um when their lives are already hard enough with the day in and day out right mm. i came to that realization while we were there i was starting to feel like um i probably couldn't stay there very long and pastor um not because i didn't like the people i actually really enjoyed the people but 
um, it, it just felt like that they weren't necessarily ready for um, the type of things that I wanted to try and do. Mm. And there was a large group of people that were, that were still happy with, with their church. Mm. And that there's nothing wrong with that. Like, yeah. like no critique on that. Um, they were, they were happy with their church. They, some of them wanted to kind of pull back even with what the, the current pastor was doing, right? Like they wanted to like pump the brakes a little bit. They needed more time. Mm. Um, and I am, I am not a pump the brakes kind of guy. Like I am, like I said, like, I just want to like keep going forward and drive forward. Yeah. And again, like that's, you know, that's a learning thing and a maturity thing that I've had to work on most of my life. Um, and so in the midst of that, like, and, and Roxy and I talked to one another and, and she was kind of feeling the same way. She was just like, yeah, like we planned on being here for a long time and it feels like our time is actually being cut short. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not sure why that is. Um, we thought about like eventually where we would want to move and where we would want to go. Um, Colorado was a place because I grew up in Colorado and she lived in Colorado for a time period that we wanted to go to. Um, and I had a friend who was pastoring here in Colorado and he actually gave my name to the district superintendent who then called me up, brought me out to this church. It felt like a really good match to this church. And then, yeah, so we, we took that and then I started pastoring. Same thing. So the congregation um, had the, the previous pastor had built a building and then left it, but yeah, he built this building and then left. So the church was in this massive amount of debt. Mm. Um, and where he built the building again was he moved the congregation, which had a church in the neighborhood centralized, moved them out to the outskirts where there was land, where they bought land and built a big building right yeah and then the people didn't want to go to that church anymore Mm -hmm. because it was far away from them Mm -hmm. and it didn't really match the demographic of where it's a biking town a biking community Mm -hmm. there's sidewalks everywhere um people like to stay close and and not travel where they have to go got it um and the church's levels of ministries were influenced and habituated by years of being in the city where they could just put up a sign and people would show up and Mm. you know where they could just open up their doors and people would say oh what's going on in here and like Mm -hmm. walk in and and so you can't do that when you're out on a field off of a highway Mm. uh people aren't going to stop by while they're driving right yeah um so moved um moved and took on this church cut down our expenses um we were on track um we were paying off the um the building really quickly like it was things things were going good the congregation though wasn't really growing that much um and i showed up and i ran some people off unintentionally um and but things were going good uh i started again like talking about this whole idea of a different model of church and what it would look like mm-hmm. um talking about like you know a gathered and scattered version where like the majority of our ministry needs to be um where our lives happen mm. not where the building is at 
Um, cause again, like, you know, with this realization that in teaching, trying to get people to imagine something new while their life is, while their lives are already full and busy, um, is difficult. So why not give them the power, the tools and the ability to, to do that something new already in their busy lives. Mm. Um, so that was a model that I was going to, which is great because it cuts down on a lot of overhead. Right. Mm. And the board for the most part was on it that I, that I thought, like, that's what they told me that they, that they were in for that. Um, I, uh, cut back on my salary. So I was taking less money. Um, and then I wanted to step it up even further. Um, I was, uh, working on a paper that I was going to use for a dissertation on, um, violence in America. Um, and like what violence does to individuals, um, specifically law enforcement, um, and military, uh, saw this opportunity to actually get a job as a police officer. I was like, this would be great. Like this will give me firsthand information that I could use while simultaneously open up space to where I could be a police officer. Um, the church wouldn't have to worry about my salary. Mm -hmm. Um, we could use that money for other things. We could hire on other pastors that were also getting get paid part-time to find jobs and to work. And we could go about this. It was all working great. Um, and that happened in 2016. I made that shift. Uh, and then for two years, I did that as a bivocational pastor. Mm -hmm. And then like, man, um, things just kind of imploded uh, <laughs> uh congregation like um was like there was like some um the church itself was really supportive and like all for it uh but then it felt like like there were some who weren't that were holding it back mm -hmm. um and in the midst of all of this, like the, the district superintendent wasn't present, which was also very hard. Um, in retrospect, like I think, and like it would have been really nice to have some support from somebody who had more experience or maturity or uh, drive but he was more concerned with his 2020 vision of like having 100 churches by 2020 um and and again like that's me retrospectfully speaking at the mm -hmm. time I didn't really think about it I didn't think that like I needed somebody there to help me mm -hmm. or somebody to just like speak words of encouragement or things like that but I really did actually need somebody to do that yeah um and uh yeah, so that happened, and and then I came to this realization that the that I was receiving a whole lot of damage. Um, my family was receiving a whole lot of damage, and unintentionally, I think I was damaging the church by asking them to go somewhere and to do something that they didn't really want to do, but they were doing it because they loved me. Mm. Um, and then. And I think that like led to all of it. So I resigned in 2018. Um, and then after I 
I realize that pastoring is a hard profession. It chews up people really, really easily. There is unrealistic expectations placed upon any pastor um, by a group of people mm. when, when they create the Messiah complex or when they pay the pastor to be a professional Christian so that they can continue to live their lives. It's very, it's unnatural. And I don't believe that that's what um, was intended with this faith we know as Christianity. Um, and that was one reason why I was so adamant about trying a different model of church and going about it a different way. Um, and I thought that I would have the strength and the energy to do it. And I ended up just getting burned out really in that moment by trying and trying and trying again and trying yeah. again. Mm-hmm. And I have seen a lot of pastors, um, that have gotten burned out and they don't know what else to do. So they just mm-hmm. continue pastoring and they continue to get beat up and their families become dysfunctional and they live a dysfunctional unhealthy life with their congregation right Mm. i think that's like rampant not just in the church of the nazarene um and yeah so when i made that decision to resign um i helped a lot i still do help a lot of my friends who are pastors, um, one, just trying to give them a space to talk where there's not going to be any judgment. Um, two, you know, when they need a break, like I'll preach um, for them. That's kind of like died out and dwindled out a little bit um, because I think like it's, yeah, it just, I don't know why, but it kind of has that. And that has probably been more for my own spiritual journey rather than my journey through the church of the Nazarene, which I think is another hour and a half conversation that we could have that we would just be touching the surface. Um, Can I ask kind of a a nitty gritty question? You're, you were ordained or or, were ordained. mm -hmm. Um, Tell me kind of the credential piece. Once you've resigned your church. So I resigned my church. You have like two years to um to decide whether or not you want to keep it or and even if you decide you want to keep your credentials you can still apply you know to maintain your credentials Mm. um and you just have to have a nazarene pastor kind of sign off on it Mm. um i think like the rules are that like you have to be you know attending a nazarene church and giving regularly for the uh, pastor to sign off on it. Um, so after two years, you get this decision of whether to keep it and continue on that path um, or turn it in. Or if you forget to turn it in, they'll just like nullify it. Um, and if you turn it in, there's some steps that you have to take to get it back. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you end up doing? Can I ask? Uh, yeah, I turned it in. What? Uh, how did you end up deciding on that rather than finding a new pastor and starting all over again? Yeah. One, I didn't want to start all over again. Um, don't feel like I need to leave. Um, don't want to leave. Um, we have developed a home here. We have us, yeah. we have a spiritual community and our friends that are here mm. um, that range from, you know, atheists and Buddhists and Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some of my congregation 
a former congregation like we still keep in touch but like to call them my spiritual community I don't think that would be fair on them Mm. um, or fair on our relationship that we actually have just not to talk about it I don't hide it from them I'm like I guess I'm not like secretly putting it in the closet but I just don't bring it up um so uh I mean this is probably the most open I've talked about my journey in a long time with somebody who is a Nazarene other than sorry other than other than my bfs <laughs> uh, uh who are nazarenes still <laughs> um so let me ask you just kind of like a couple of reflection questions mm-hmm. how how might we and i guess i mean the church of the nazarene have made a more like hospitable place for your ministry there that's a really good question and I think that there would have to be um, the hierarchy would have to be comfortable with people who look and sounded and acted different than their perceptions um, of what a Nazarene should be, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think the hierarchy would have to be okay with having um, healthy disagreements, healthy dialogue, healthy conversations. And I really don't think that they are on a lot of levels. Um, and so we, so those who, those who hold on to the Nazarene identity, like, but may think differently based upon their Nazarene identity, right? Like it's rooted in what it means to be Nazarene. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have to kind of hide in the shadows mm-hmm. to have the conversations. Um, they have to do it with fear that they might not be able to have the, have the voice that they once had. Mm. Um, you know, I like years in my relationship for decades, like I've always been like, Brit has, a, is in a good place because you have the protection of the church of the church that you're a part of. Mm. Right. Uh, and that, and that's not, again, like, that's not a bad thing, but like, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that. Mm. um and so a lot of people feel like they're doing it on their own or they're rebelling on their own and even with the voices and the solidarity that they found in other Nazarenes who might who might be willing to have the conversations with them or who might not even fully think like them but are at least willing to dialogue right Mm. those people are all afraid of losing their jobs or their careers or their callings Mm. um and uh, yeah, don't know what else to do. So a lot of those people moved on, mm-hmm. right? Like I was, I was having this conversation with my Presbyterian friend and he was like, he's like, wait, there's enough millennial pastors that are no longer Nazarenes that you can actually have a podcast series about it. <laughs> like he was blown away. Like, seriously, like he was oh. blown away by that. And I was like, yeah isn't that odd like isn't that Mm. an oddity that is um and I think it's because of that unwillingness to have that conversation and that dialogue and that unwillingness I I don't know how else to be like I don't know what else maybe those are just like pie in the sky things yeah but 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 I think I think you're onto something there though if if our if this faith community was a safe space to have questions and open conversations and dialogue 
why are we so scared that our theology doesn't have any weight that we treat it as if it doesn't have any any weight mm. right like if our theology is worth believing you shouldn't you should be okay with questions you should yeah. be okay with people who have thought who have different thoughts or different opinions yeah. or want to challenge what the what the status quo is and that is not that is not common you don't show up to a district assembly or a general assembly and talk about like LGBTQ issues. Unless you, or you do, you do it in a dark room off to the side, mm. right? Um, you don't have those types of conversations. You don't talk about uh, the openness of God and how the majority of religion is based upon um, human desire. We don't have those conversations. And so that's, uh, you know, that's the challenge, I think, with mm. the Church of the Nazarene. So as a follow-up to that, um, mm-hmm. can I ask you what, like, if any, words of wisdom or encouragement that you might have for <laughs> the, those of us, the, the millennial pastors that are, that are staying? That are staying. I... I I don't. I, <laughs> I, I, I am because I, I, I am under the impression because it's not just happening. This isn't just happening in the church of Nazarene. There are a lot of people who are our age and a little bit older and a little bit younger, right? That are leaving the American Christian faith. Mm. Um, and not necessarily leaving the faith, but leaving the American Christian faith. And it's yeah. like, we're kind of like all on the same mountain, but we're on different trail systems. Mm. And we're like, Hey, what does it look like over there? And they're like, I don't know. Like, what does it look like over there? Yeah. Well, it kind of looks like this. Like, do you want to set up camp? No, we want to keep going mm-hmm. <laughs> type of thing. And it's like, well, let's all get together around a bonfire. I don't know. That feels kind of like what we just left. Like, let's, mm. let's keep moving until we run into something different. Yeah. And so like the model of church in the West, because I don't know the model of church anywhere else, but the model of church in the West is, is probably going to die out. Um, and the church itself is not going to be, is not going to die. Um, and if it does, it will be resurrected into something brand new and we won't be able to, we won't, we won't know what it looks like. Right. We don't know what the resurrected life looks like. Mm. Um, and I think that's my theology uh, coming out uh, because I told you earlier, and man, I, I wish that we had more time. Sorry, this is no, very great. long, but um, I told you that I'm a Christian agnostic, right? Like I still practice my faith pragmatically, but when it comes to believing, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. And I'm not sure where to look like, but all the essence of Christianity that I latch on to um, still bring me hope. And, you know, resurrection and new life is something that brings me hope and that keeps me moving. And from day in and day out is that what we see now is just but a poor reflection of what will be. Mm -hmm. And I think that that means the same for the American Christianity is that like, it's going to die out, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be the end. Um, It will probably look different. And I don't think we have the imagine the capacity to imagine what it looks like right now. Mm. Um, And I hope we find it. Um, And I hope that when we do there's space for people like me 
and there's space for people like you um, because we're different. Uh, <laughs> and, and that uh, those who are still committed will continue to be committed um, to their love for each other and for the persons mm. um, and let that be their encouragement, right? Like let the, let the families that you pastor be your encouragement. Let the um, relationships that you hold with, with your congregations and with your peers be what encourages you. Mm. Um, and may those of us who, who have left, may we find uh, rest and solace in the fact that like we're all on a journey and we may not know where our destination is going to lead us, but uh, we'll get there eventually it's beautiful i think that's where i'm at yeah um well thank you i feel like we could do a part two because i there's so many other questions that i would love to ask you about but um in the meantime thanks for for taking the time to to be here and and share your story share your heart thank you for creating the space for people like me i appreciate it yeah Since we love millennials so much on this podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors. Here's one now. Hello, this is Pastor Kobe, author of, and I leave you with this, a book of biblical meditations that ask you to pray, journal, and discuss everything that you learn in the journey in which God has called you to. The link is in the bio. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Britt Bullerjack. Our editor is Caden Barksdale. And original music was done by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.